I made a couple of angel investments in carbon offsetting companies. And the more I read and the more I learned, the more I was like, this is all a flaming pile of shit. Like, I can't believe this is what people are buying right now. It makes no sense at all. Like the accounting of it, like what's being sold, the quality, even with these certification bodies, it just maybe being an outsider and a, like a learner made me able to question things in a way that I wouldn't have been able to if I didn't come from a different sphere of knowledge. Hello, and welcome to Secret Leaders from Infamous Media. I'm your host, Dan Murray-Serta, and this is a podcast where I draw out learnings from top entrepreneurs so you can take your business to the next level. Today, I'm talking to Michelle Yu, who co-founded Songkick with Pete Finley, another guest we had on the show, and is now the CEO and co-founder of Supercritical. Supercritical lets businesses hit net zero carbon emissions without the need for a whole team of people. Their software helps businesses identify their carbon output and reduce it, but she wants to do more than just plant trees, which is good, because we've heard all of that before, haven't we? Now, Michelle hadn't planned to become a founder so quickly again after Songkick, but her story begins there, in the pre-iPhone era, with gig-finding technology. Simpler times, and that's where we're going to start our story today. The young Michelle Yu who started Songkick did not even know what she was getting into. Um, I mean, I grew up in the Valley. My mom worked at Apple, so I was around tech for my whole life. Um, and I've always, you know, I was online at a very young age and stuff. I worked in publishing. I studied English and philosophy, um, but I've always used technology to solve my problems. And it was really meeting Ian and Pete that pulled me into the world of entrepreneurship. You know, they always wanted to start something together. And when they decided to quit their jobs to, to start something and they were casting around for ideas, I just said, can you make something that will tell me when gigs are happening? Because I don't know when they're happening. It's really annoying. And surely we can solve this problem. Um, we applied to YC with that idea, got in and the rest is history. But I didn't feel, you know, like I belonged at all. You know, I couldn't code. I didn't speak the language of tech and I wasn't a man. So that was already a, a knock against me. So it was very, yeah, an outsider coming in and, and, and infiltrating. Did you feel like imposter syndrome? Yeah, loads, loads. I felt it all the time. I mean, I remember, you know, I managed the tech team as as the head of product and I didn't know what they were doing and I couldn't pretend to know. So that, that was a huge imposter syndrome. I think meeting so many talented young founders, I felt like people knew what they were doing and I didn't. Um, hiring a, our CTO out of Google, I felt massive imposter syndrome, but you know, you just learn that no one knows what they're doing. There's no dumb answers. And I think the experience of starting Songkick showed me what people are capable of when they're motivated and passionate and are willing to fail a lot. And so I kind of gained confidence through that experience. So Songkick is, it's still around. Um, it's a live music discovery app. At the time when we started, it was pre-iPhone. Um, the iTunes had just come out a few years ago. And the original idea was, wouldn't it be great if something could scan my iTunes library and tell me when a gig is coming up in my city for any band I like? It was basically personalized concert alerts because at that time, you know, we were scouring MySpace, Ticketmaster, venue mailing lists to know when gigs were happening. So that that concept of personalized concert alerts really brought us through to 2017 when we were acquired by Warner Music. And a few of the trends that we were building on was mobile. So when, you know, iOS launched, everyone had their, their music library in their pocket. And it was really easy to access that, to scan uh, your music library, to know when you're favorite bands were coming to town, but we also built on the the growth of streaming music. So we started around the same time, I think as SoundCloud and Spotify, but they were both tiny, 
tiny companies when they started. Now they're they're massive. That also gave us access to personalized music taste for each individual person. And it turns out, you know, loads of music fans around the world have the same problem. By the time we left, we were by the time I left the business in 2016, we were doing around 20 million monthly uniques across our web and app, and 100 million in ticketing transactions through the app. So we grew pretty significantly. Um, but this that's the start. I guess the end was. We ended up in a lawsuit with with Ticketmaster for antitrust violations. I mean, kind of, they were really clamping down on our business and we sued them. We won a settlement, but you don't really start a company to end up in a lawsuit. We ended up selling the business to Warner Music where the team still lives and the app is still alive and being worked on, which is probably one of my greatest. I'm very proud of that. I, I don't think you can have control over what happens to your product after you're acquired, but I'm really happy that it still lives and serves music fans everywhere. But yeah, and if you if you want to talk about failure and grief, like that felt like a massive failure. We didn't start the business to end up in a lawsuit or even to sell. So that was pretty hard to get over. I think being a leader through really difficult times like that, especially, you know, with some of the lawsuit stuff, we couldn't talk about it publicly as it was happening. So we couldn't share a lot of information and we had built a really transparent culture. We liked to tell our team everything that was going on. That was that was definitely challenging. You kind of feel like you've got two faces and keeping track of what you're allowed to say and what you're not allowed to say is really challenging. Um, but I'm really, I think one of the, the best things we did at Songkick was invest in the culture and build, build a team who cared about each other, you know, sh- had no ego, really respected that transparency. And I think that the team still operates that way inside Warner now. And I don't, you know, I don't know that many people that are still there, but I think the way we built the processes and, and the way we make decisions really stood them well after some of the leaders left, like myself. Um, I think deciding to leave as a founder is probably was probably one of the hardest things I ever did, really coming to terms with the fact that I was burnt out and didn't want to work on this problem anymore and needed a break was, it felt like hugely disloyal. And it took me many, many months to even say it out loud to myself, let alone start that process of leaving. How did you come to the realization that you were burnt out and more without asking like an obvious question? I guess everyone's experience of realizing they're burnt out can be quite different. So what, what was yours? Like how long do you think that you'd actually been experiencing it without even recognizing it? And what made you recognize it? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think in general, I'm quite in tune with my moods and my mental health. So it was really hard to have such a difficult experience that I wasn't honest with myself about. Like that was very foreign to me and weird. I just kind of noticed that, you know, when we would do team meetings or talk about new ideas, I was very jaded. I was like, uh, this idea, we tried that five years ago. It didn't work. Like, fuck off. I don't want to do it anymore. You know, you get to that point when you're, you're an old guard and you've seen it all and you're not excited anymore. You don't, you're not open-minded anymore. And that, that was probably my first inkling where I was just like rolling my eyes at everything. Like, ugh, you just joined two weeks ago. Now I want to try this thing. We already tried it. Like, I don't want to do that. That attitude of like being closed-minded was probably my first red flag of like, oh, something's wrong. You're you're being a little dickhead. Like you're not <laughs> you're not encouraging the spirit of contribution and brainstorming. Um, that was my first indication that something wasn't going well. I think that before I got to the point of wanting to leave, I had very quickly disabused myself of thinking I had the best ideas because we made the classic mistake of building a product without showing it to any users for six months, 
and then launched it and then nobody wanted it. And that was probably my biggest learning experience at Songkick was like, you know, if you don't test things quickly and iterate and kind of get feedback frequently, you're, you're going to be investing in the wrong thing. So through that process, I already had set up a team and a process that was all about testing ideas and validating ideas and, and throwing them out as quickly as possible and having no ego over who has the best idea. Because what I think what you learn when you start a company is ideas are cheap. Everyone's got the same ideas and how you execute on it, that that makes it successful or not. So I, I already had kind of hired and managed a team of PMs that were running teams without me. I didn't I no longer did the day to day looking at features and and having input directly into what the product was. It was more making sure my team was productive. Um, so that made it easier to not feel like my personal ego was embedded in the product. But certainly in hiring my replacement, it really had to be devolving that to the people who would work with that person. And I was obviously part of the interviews and had strong opinions and knew what, what we needed to look for, but the decision wasn't mine ultimately. And I had very deliberately left it to the people that that person would be working with. What was the process going on inside your head, just out of interest? So like, not just like leaving the company that you're founding, but also the role and the responsibility. Like we know that Pete had left already. Was your other partner still involved in the business at this point? Like who was your safe circle here? So Ian had already left as well about six to nine months before. Um, before Ian left, we had merged with another business called CrowdSurge and their leadership team effectively took the company over um, after I left because I was the only like founder from this old Songkick side that, that was remaining. And emotionally, it was really hard. I mean, I didn't have anyone I could talk to. Um, Ian, who's my partner, you know, was himself going through his own, own extrication. So I couldn't talk with him about it. Um, my friends are not founders. So they d didn't really, I mean, they tried to be supportive, but they didn't really understand. And actually it wasn't until I thought about starting super critical and I got a coach to kind of help me work through all the PTSD from Songkick. It took a year to kind of work through my issues, my baggage, my like reckoning before I felt ready to start another company. And it, I didn't, I mean, a few years after leaving, I met some other founders who were who had left their first company and were thinking about starting something else that helped me as well kind of think about that next venture. But at the time, I felt very alone and not in a good place mentally. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. 
This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. Did you meet Ian at Songkit? Like, what was the relationship there? Were you already together and you co-founded it together? And um, second part of that question, you know, what was it like running a business and going home to your partner like the, like every single day? Yeah, I mean, well, we, we met before we started the company. We actually met in Beijing studying Mandarin in Beijing, like just kind of a gap year after our master's degrees. And we were dating for about a year before we started Songkick. And a year is not that long in a romantic relationship. I think that I remember thinking when we first started the business and it was like seeing how we made decisions, seeing how we managed people fighting all the time. I always tell people we got really efficient at fighting and resolving differences through starting a business together. I think hopefully that served us well, um, but it was hard. It was really hard and I'm really good at compartmentalizing. So I, you know, I, we just did things like, I was like, I don't want to talk about work at home. So whenever we come home, I don't want to talk about it. And we have to police each other and tell each other to uh, stop talking about work. Obviously you can't really stick to that. I don't think there's like a generic one size fits all way of being in a relationship and running a company together. We, we really tried hard to not allow it to influence how we were co-founders. And I think that was something that we really valued and prioritized and, and wanted feedback on. What about with him leaving before you? He very much needed to leave before me. And at the point at which he left, I didn't think I needed to leave. I wasn't really thinking about it at all. I was kind of just trying to get the merger done and stabilize the team and, and keep the company you know, stable. And I think that one of the things that I thought about a lot after leaving Songkick was just how I prioritize the business over my personal life and my personal happiness by default. Like it was like a knee jerk wanting to stay to keep the business running and make sure the merger happens successfully without even thinking like, do I want to stay or what do I think? Um, and that's something I'm trying to do differently with Supercritical. But at that time, it wasn't, it wasn't debate. We didn't talk about who fight over who got to leave first. He just, he just did. He needed to first and he did. And then he took a break and then I was there for another eight, nine months. And then I left. And then after that, we backpacked around the world for a year. So that was an awesome holiday to have. It taught me a lot about you know, what I need to be happy because I lived out of a backpack for a year and I didn't need all the crap that I had had. So it allowed me to have the space to think about what mattered to me and my values and also extricate myself from everything familiar to me so I could have that perspective. Because I think if I were in London, I'd be doing coffee meetings all the time and not really getting that space. I think I went through this whole process of trying to understand what work meant to me. You know, I really, when I backpacked, we lived off of like $2 a day. And I was like, maybe I can just be one of those Mr. Money Mustache fire people and just like consult like quarter of my time and then live off the savings. You know, I explored a lot of different ways of living in that way. But I think I arrived at the fact that I want to have impact with the time I spend. And of course I can enjoy my life and my family, but I want to be 
making something that has an impact in the world. And that was like a vague understanding, but I didn't really know what that actually meant. I also became a mother in that time. And that definitely sharpens the mind in terms of what you spend your time on. Um, you know, it's really important to me that I'm the kind of mom I want to be. And the Songkick way of running a company was not compatible with being, being a mother. So that was another kind of prioritization reckoning that I had to come to terms with. But in terms of impact, like it was really in that backpacking trip that I fell in love with the outdoors and I went camping and hiking and surfing and climbing for the first time. And it was, and that made me fall in love with nature. And that kind of was my gateway drug into the climate change crisis. Um, I read Yvonne Chouinard's memoir. He's the founder of Patagonia, which is Let My People Go Surfing. I remember reading and be like, oh my God, we're so fucked from climate change. Like, how did I not know this? You know, I read the news, I recycle, I use bulb. Like I thought scientists had it figured out, but they really don't. And that's really terrifying. And then when I had my son, the month after he was born, the IPCC report came out about getting to net zero emissions by 2050 and staying below 1.5 degrees of warming. And, you know, when you have a kid in 2050 is like a real, he's going to be 30 something at that time, you know, like he's going to be a young person still. It makes the time frames a lot more tangible and urgent. And those things just really made me think I need to do whatever I can to fix this. I don't know what I can do. And it took me a few years to explore and learn and like give myself the space to figure out what, you know, if I've built a consumer app that touches millions of people, how does that help with carbon emissions? But I gave myself the space to figure it out. And and so I, it kind of became a, not a choice. Like I had to start another company to, to do what I could, can here. When you're in like ideation mode about what kind of company you could build, um, I'd love to know what kind of process you went through, how much time you gave. I guess I'm like fascinated with yours. You have a category, which is climate change, but that is so broad. How do you go through a process of narrowing down what you do? And this would be then the perfect segue into what Supercritical is. I wish I was more deliberate about it. I have. I think that actually... You know, when I, when I went to Local Globe and I was saying, you know, I told them, I just want to look at climate. This is what I'm going to do next. And they're like, fine, like, look at all the climate investments that come inbound. I, I really took my time to get my head around the space because climate tech is such a misnomer. It's like everything we do emits carbon dioxide and we need to stop all of it. So it's everything from clean meat to nuclear. How do you prioritize that, right? So it was a long process of just not having to pick an idea. Cause at that point, even as well, I didn't know that I wanted to start another business. I was just like, I just need to do something in climate. I don't know what that means. Maybe I should become an investor. Maybe I should move into the policy world. I gave myself permission to not know the answer, which I found deeply uncomfortable as like a type A planner, not having a plan was probably one of the hardest things I ever did. And then it was when I, it was very organic that the process of coming up with the idea, I, um, I made a couple of angel investments in carbon offsetting companies, which got me familiar with what carbon offsets are, you know, what that market is. And the more I read and the more I learned, the more I was like, this is all a flaming pile of shit. Like, I can't believe this is what people are buying right now. It makes no sense at all. Like the accounting of it, like what's being sold, the quality, even with these certification bodies, it just, maybe, maybe being an outsider and a, and a, like a learner, it made me able to question things in a way that I wouldn't have been able to, if I didn't come from a different sphere of knowledge. It was really when Stripe, Microsoft and Shopify all announced their carbon removal purchases around the same time. I think it may have been 2019 or so. 
that I got exposed to the world of carbon removal. And so that I really just followed my native interests. I didn't have like a to-do list of questions to ask and ways to figure it out. And when I learned that to stay below 1.5 degrees of warming, even if we reduce as much as we can and stop flying, et cetera, we still need to remove about 10 billion tons of carbon dioxide from the sky annually to stay below a safe level of warming. And we've only removed a few thousand tons with these technologies. That was like an urgent scaling challenge that I felt like no one was really talking about because it was this kind of less publicized area of the climate fight. So scaling carbon removal, how do we get people to pay for this carbon dioxide to be removed? That was like a very clarifying kind of way of thinking, how do I convert this offset market that's paying for crap right now and have them buy carbon removal instead? So the idea actually formed very organically kind of on my own. I didn't really talk about it with anybody, but when I was kind of trying to find out, like recruit my co-founder, I, I, you know, Aaron is somebody I worked with for years at Sonkic. He was a CTO there. And I always just was really impressed with how driven he was and how he's just a great human being. I basically asked him, like, I think I want to start something. Here's my idea. Do you want to do it with me? And that's the phase that we were very deliberate about. Like we did all the founder dating questionnaires. We really went deep on kind of recalibrating our relationship because I know, as you do, that co-founder relationship is so precious and volatile and often is the reason why companies don't succeed is because their human relationship breaks down. So we really stress tested it, asked each other tough questions. I did a whole exercise on like what I wanted to do differently. That's when I got my coach. And I, I asked him to start it in January of 2020. And it wasn't until January 2021 that we actually did because it took me personally that year of lots of coaching and conversations to feel like, okay, I really feel ready now to dive in again, because I was scared. You know, I was really scared of failing. I was scared of having a bad idea, scared of replicating terrible decisions, terrible experiences. So interesting to hear you talk about fear, because like the more time you spend with your experience, the less comfortable you actually feel like you've got the chops to do what it takes. Yeah, but you also, I think for me, it was feeling confident I could do it again. And also keep in mind, you know, I was chief product officer and I'm CEO now. That's a, that's a totally different job that I observed and was really close to, but did not do myself. So that's another thing I needed to gain confidence around. Um, But it was also, I know what the cost is, you know, I know it's 10 years of my life. You know, when we started Soundcook, we're like, oh, we're going to sell in two years and be done with it. And nine years later, I'm still there, right? So I knew that this was like my great second act and, you know, what I'm doing with my career now and I needed to make sure it was worth it. How do you feel about transitioning to CEO? How do you feel like you're doing? I don't know how I'm doing. I am aware of my deficiencies. I think the thing that I've learned about being CEO is you have to just have your eyes across everything, right? Whereas with product, there were co-founder duties that was across everything, but my day-to-day was like, I'm running the product team. I'm making sure we're building the right thing. It was very focused. I don't have that luxury now. You know, my day is split up between very, very different tasks. And as an introvert, I find that challenging, like switching context, talking to so many different people. But I love learning. So I'm certainly being challenged. I'm learning to do things I never had to do before, like sell and be a salesperson, um, fundraise. You know, I was part of the fundraising process, but I wasn't leading it before. And I just enjoy learning new things. So um, I hope my my willingness to get feedback from my team and being emotionally honest about how I think I'm doing will mean that I'm like headed in the right direction. 
it's really interesting because you're like, you know, don't know how you're doing, but you've got willingness to receive feedback, which leads me to believe that you do have some inkling of how you're doing. You might just be too modest to admit it. So what is what is some feedback that you've received about how well you're doing? And what is some feedback you've received about what you're not doing so well in your new role? Yeah, I mean, I'm very aware that one of my most important jobs is to communicate to the team what we're doing and why. And we have a team member who's very young, you know, this is her first real job out of university and she's absolutely fearless about asking questions. She asked probably the toughest questions. So we just did our Q4 kind of OKR rollout and I did a presentation to the team and she, she just really challenges me to do better at explaining why and kind of give reasons why we didn't choose to do certain things. So she's been really great in making sure that I'm honest and communicating well. Like one of the feedback she gave me was I send a monthly email update to, to our investors. And then I sent forward it onto the team after I've sent that. And she was like, I learned more from that investor update than I do in the day to day. And that seems weird. I'm like, that's bad. That's really bad. If you feel like I'm in, in, you know, keeping our investors better informed than you. So that, that was really, really helpful feedback. But my, my Aaron's really great at giving feedback. You know, he's really good at giving positive feedback as well as constructive feedback. And, you know, he will just always like frequently after any team thing or presentation, he'll just tell me how he think, how he thought it went. So that's, that's good for frequent feedback. Okay. Give us the pitch. What's super critical? Like, how do you pitch it to your investors? What's the snapshot of where you are today? How much have you raised? How much do you need to raise? What's the vision of what you're trying to accomplish? Get your salesman hat on. Oh, God. <laughs> so we, Supercritical is a software platform that helps businesses get to net zero. We're building software that automates the process of measuring your carbon footprint. So upstream and downstream, everything you do as a company, whether that's using cloud computing all the way to the usage of your game, the electricity used there, we can measure the carbon footprint end to end. This typically takes somebody six months of working with a consultant charging five figures. And that's what I learned at my time at Local Globe. This can be done with software. And then the other half of what we do is we help customers navigate the process of setting their net zero goal, their reduction kind of got pathway to how they'll reduce emissions year on year, and then how they navigate their carbon removal offset spend. So as I mentioned before, um, the thing that I really care about is most people are buying conventional offsets that pay other people to stop emitting. So that's like paying for a renewable energy project, a clean cook stove project. But in the world of getting to net zero, that's just not good enough anymore. You know, if you emit a ton as the heights, you pay someone to stop emitting, your ton of carbon dioxide is still out there warming the planet. So you need to actually remove that ton with an equivalent carbon removal purchase to get to net zero. And that's the education to the market that we're trying to kind of promote. I really came up with the idea at Local Globe. It crystallized both in kind of learning about stripe and offsets and carbon removal. But when Saul, the founder of Local Globe, tasked me with getting to net zero, he's like, we want to get to net zero as a fund. You care about climate change, you go figure it out. And that process of learning what to do, getting a clear definition of what net zero means, talking to consultants and getting quoted like insane fees, I was like, this should not be done with human beings. This can be done with automated software. Um, so that's where I came up with the idea. And I knew from my time at Songkick is, you know, if you don't make something really, really easy, people won't act. And I wanted to bring that frictionless consumer mindset to climate action for businesses. And more than half of the world's GDP has made a net zero commitment. It's only a matter of time before that trickles down into businesses. I think like 30% of 
the FTSE 100 has made a net zero commitment. This is now a thing that businesses have to do to be a good corporate actor, attract talent, report back to investors for ESG reasons. Having a strong climate policy is something that you know, companies are aware of, but they don't have any support in doing so. And they're not going to hire a full-time sustainability lead to help them get there. So we really want them to outsource it to us. Our software will provide it to them and they can be confident that they're doing the right thing by the planet and not just greenwashing. Talk us through like a, a typical sales cycle. So say you're listening to this right now. How does someone sign up? What does it cost? Give us your personal phone number so they can call you. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Email me, michelle at gosupercritical.com. But if you go to a website, email the contact email that goes to me too. So I'm getting all the emails. Um, really what we've found is I've been really encouraged by, I'm learning about sales and obviously not every, I don't have like a hundred percent conversion rate, but there's just this cohort of CEOs who really care and want to do something. They just don't know what to do. And most of our customers were, I talked to the CEO and they're like, yeah, this has been stressing me out. I didn't know what to do. I haven't looked into it, but I believe in what you're doing. Let's just go. And it hasn't been this protracted process. It's just like one and done. And, and those, I'm hoping there's more of them out there because it's, we've been really, really lucky. I think there's this untapped kind of demand of CEOs who want to act, but they just don't have a sustainability officer and they're not going to devote the resources. But when presented with a turnkey solution, they're like, yeah, why wouldn't I act? This is fine. Um, and in terms of how much we charge, like we're, you know, as we're early, we're iterating through pricing right now. But I can say that we just announced a partnership with TechZero where we're offering a 50 to 75% discount to people who sign up to TechZero because we're trying to like motivate people to sign up ahead of COP. So if you are interested in signing up and, you know, working with us, get in touch and we'll give you a, a massive discount. And we're, we're figuring out kind of what works for us right now. Um, but the process then is really, really simple. Like because we, you know, we come from consumer, we've scoped it so that it's less than a day of your team's time to gather the data. We take your zero accounting export, your cloud billing data, and we have a classifier that looks at your line by line transactions to translate that into carbon emissions. So you don't have to manually gather all the data. Um, once you give us that export, it takes us about a week. We have a head of climate on staff who looks at every footprint herself to make sure it's like legit. And then we present it back to you and explain like, here's where your emissions are coming from. Here's what you can do. You know, if you stop flying first class, you can cut it by half. Like they're very easy and easy things to do if you know what to do. And, and it's really, I always compare it to calorie counting, like until you build an intuition about what's, what has a lot of calories, you just don't really know how to eat healthily maybe. And carbon emissions are the same. Like typically the companies we work with, they've got the green sustainability team inside the company who recycles and then does tree planting as an offsite, but they don't have a holistic audit of everything they're doing and where their carbon emissions are coming from. And that's where, that's where we want, want to provide that data and that like objective view on what you're doing and how it's impacting the planet and what you can do to change it. Okay. I'd love to know where you are currently. So have you raised, is it seed series A? Like what's the funding cycle? How much have you raised? Um, who, like, who are you hiring? What are you trying to achieve and where? And then like my follow-up question to that, sorry, was going to be, you know, to your point of we've got forward thinking CEOs are coming to us with the problem, et cetera. I, I'm guessing like that is really the ultimate challenge of the business though, right? Which is that, yeah, you will have like the early adopter crowd for sure. But for this to really work, the entire point is you need the mass market adoption. So it must be real. like in some ways it's hard because you're basically operating a sales cycle into a converted choir anyway, where you are solving a problem for people that want to do it. And like for you to achieve your vision, 
you need to do it for people that don't even like think about it in the first place. Yes, absolutely. You're asking all, this is what keeps me up at night. So in terms of our fundraise, um, we raised 2 million pounds pre-seed from local globe and, and angel investors. And one of the things I'm super proud of is that half of my angel investors are women. I made sure that I could have a, a balanced cap table and I spent extra time fundraising to get there. And I just want to be, you know, a, a tiny example of the fact that it's possible because being at local globe and looking at all the cap tables that came in are just like, why are women not investing more? And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, but that's something I'm super proud of and, and happy that I made happen. Um, in terms of hiring, we are hiring the, the three roles that we have open right now are a marketing lead, a sales lead and an SDR. So if that's you, please email me. I'm desperate, um, as, as are all founders desperate to hire. And in terms of your, your question around getting that outer concentric circle outside of the lucky early adopters of tech CEOs. Actually, what we found is that we're most often, if we don't speak with the CEO directly, it's we're most often delegated to the head of people. And what we're seeing is that companies are starting to see it as part of their talent brand. Um, and one of my angels is actually Gustav from Y Combinator who runs the climate program there. And he said to me ages ago that climate is the next diversity and inclusion. If like five, 10 years ago, everyone was clueless and didn't know and didn't know what to do or report. And it was optional to have a diversity policy. And now it's non-negotiable. If you want to hire talent, you have to have a strong one and be like real with it. Climate's the next one, I think. And, you know, there's been loads of studies like millennials and Gen Z, they want to work for a company that has impact. They've chosen businesses for the climate policy. They've chosen their place of work for that. And so I think that in tech, especially because there's such a talent war, people see that and they, they can see that they can get a competitive edge. And we've done so many things like team lunch and learns and engagement activities where it really is motivating for the team to see that their place of work cares about the big issues, you know, even if their business isn't directly related to it. Yeah, I completely agree. So before you go, I want to know one lesson that you've learned that you think other people need to learn or would be helpful for them to know in, in any case. And then also the best piece of advice you've ever received in your life. What I did at my, at local globe was part of my role was in kind of coaching the portfolio companies on product discovery. And I think that the toughest lesson I learned doing song kick and running product there, which I try to promote to any founder who will listen to me is just getting a good product discovery process in place and being very egoless about your ideas and testing them and getting feedback. Like, you know, by the end of when I was leaving, we were launching multiple experiments a week and validating ideas so rapidly before we doubled down on winning ideas and investing in them. And I wish that I had known that the first time around because we wasted so much time investing months building some feature that nobody cared about because we didn't really get feedback or test the idea effectively. Um, and that's that discovery process is really a skill that you learn. You can't just read a book and do it well. You need to try it out and make mistakes and figure out like your your business's way of doing that. So that's that's the advice I I give founders when they when they ask me for advice. And that that can apply to anything you do, right? It doesn't have to just be product. It's like marketing experiments or even a hiring process. Just like learn quickly and and get that feedback because you don't know the answer. The best advice that I've received. I wish that I had like super wise mentors I called on that could give me really wise advice. I think my coach really helped me work through kind of what I wanted to do differently with Supercritical than I did with Songkick. And a lot of that was about 
being a mom now and work-life balance and prioritizing and making sure that I didn't let my the company kind of completely absorb me in a way that was unhealthy. And the conversation around work-life balance, mental health is so much more sophisticated now than it was when we started Sonkic in 2007. So there's already more of an awareness, but it is like, look after yourself. Like you only have one you and if you burn yourself out because you think you need to work till 11 p.m. every night and then you're worthless for three years after that, that's totally pointless. So it's really just knowing what you need as a human being to stay grounded and sane and happy and investing in that as much as you invest in whatever the OKR is for your company right now is, I, no one's given me that advice, but I kind of arrived at it with my coach. Amazing. Yeah. Good sign of a good coach, finding the wisdom from within. Michelle, it's been a massive pleasure. Where can people go to contact you if they're interested about signing up for Supercritical? Yeah. Michelle at gosupercritical.com or if you just you know, go to gosupercritical.com, our emails are on there and please let me know. I'm, I'm here to talk. Awesome. Thanks so much for your time, Michelle. Well, thank you. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. You want to be organized. You want to be structured. You want to have everything predictable ahead of time. You want to like be very intentional about everything. But it's like, let me tell you, like, like half the biggest decisions that happen in companies happen um, because of random conversations that happen that they weren't expecting. And that's literally how the world works. That was Larry Gadea, the founder and CEO of Envoy, a software prodigy. He had the biggest Pikachu picture website in the world at 12 years old, started working at Google at 17 and helped build Twitter. He did all this after his family had fled communist Romania for Canada. Find out how he's done it and what he's pivoted into today. Thanks for listening. I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and I was the host of this episode. Editing was done by Lower Street Media with Will Stolomon, our head of podcast, Bring It All Together.